Welcome everyone to yet another amazing episode of Divinity Connecting the Dots. We talk about different things, everything under the sun related to public health, planetary health, you know, and how our expert guests got to do, um, uh, you know, what they're doing at this point in time and what their journey is like. Today, we're going to be discussing authority with a wonderful vegan publisher. Um, before I introduce you to Mitali de Porquesta, um, let's, let's see this animation. Mitali, I'm going to bring you on stage and when we were making this animation, you know, uh, my colleague Priyanka and I, we were like, oh my goodness, you know, we are just going to be having so much fun on this conversation <laughs> because, you know, what has authority got to do with veganism? I mean, it's it's just one of those things that, you know, piques curiosity and, and you know, tickles people and like, what has authority got to do with veganism? But anyway, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, me. Yes, and I can't wait to learn everything about your journey. Um, how did you come to be a vegan book publisher? And uh, we're, we're going to talk about a lot of different things, including obviously about authority. So let's start, Mitali. Tell me a little bit about your vegan, your plant-based transformation story. How did that happen? Okay. Um, well, I was brought up a vegetarian, um, but not for animal rights or for um, the environment or anything, any, any of those other reasons. It was mainly because I was brought up by a Hindu family. And as I'm sure you're aware, a lot of Hindus generally, not all, but generally tend to be um, vegetarian. Um, and then when I turned, I think I was 13, my mother said that I was old enough to make my own mind up now whether I wanted to remain a vegetarian or start eating meat and I just went to McDonald's and had a hamburger which you know just go, gives you an idea of my mentality as a teenager I certainly wasn't in an environment where there was any encouragement to love animals I mean certainly there was never any encouragement to be cruel to animals of course not my my parents were loving but i'm sure you're aware and in indian culture the concept of animals tend to be outside yeah they're outside beings and humans are indoor beings and you know the whole pet concept is a very western concept that has now been adopted i, I know many indian families in india now who have the family dog or they have cats and that sort of thing but that is a new thing when, when my parents were growing up in bangladesh and in india that wasn't normal. You didn't have animals inside the house. You didn't have pets. So I grew up, when they came to the UK and they had me, they, those same values were given to me. So animals were, yeah, they're cute, but they're over there and that's it. And then when I was 13, I was told that I was allowed to do whatever I wanted. So as a typical 13-year-old, I rebelled against my parents. So off I went to McDonald's and I started eating hamburgers and cheeseburgers and Big Macs and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I was like that for a very, very long time. And it was only in 2010 that my youngest sister decided that she would like to rescue a cat from our local shelter. I wasn't, I'll be honest with you, I wasn't 100% sold on the idea. I just thought, again, my upbringing is animals are messy, they're noisy, they can be dirty, they bring germs into the house. I really wasn't all that keen in, in a, a cat coming into our household. But my little sister was adamant and um, she even, she, this is amazing, she was only 15 years old at the time. She made a petition, she took it to a school and she got about 100 signatures, even from the head teacher and her form teacher. So, and then she presented it to me and, and my mother. And I remember saying to my mother, I was like, you need to reward that kind of behavior, especially when a teenager. Most teenagers, their way of trying to get their own way is slamming doors and getting angry and, oh, you don't understand me and that kind of attitude. And instead, my little sister went and did a very grown-up thing and petitioned it. And I thought that, need, that behavior needs to be rewarded. 
so we we relented and said okay let's let's get this cat that she wants so we went to the shelter we rescued a cat called we called it isha so we gave her an indian name within oh my gosh nivi i think it was very quick within six or seven weeks i just saw a sentience that i it floored me i was just like we're not told this we're not told they understand this much like Isha wouldn't know who was having a bad day and she was very aware of which member of the family needed her that day you know and who was having a down day who's had a bad day at work who's had a bad day at school my younger sister was at school at the time she just just very very aware and I just thought oh my god we're not told that they understand this much now I realize as I started to go down my journey I realized the reason why we do that is we couldn't do as a as a species we couldn't do what we do to other species if we actually believed that they have the sentence that I know that they have the reason we feel we can get away with doing what we do is thinking they don't really know what's going on. Like the average chicken doesn't really know what's going on. The average lamb doesn't know what's happening to it. The average cow doesn't know what's... That makes us feel okay about what we do and we carry on doing what we do. And that was the breakthrough for me. That's when the realization that, you know, Isha just had such sentience. And this is a species that doesn't even make it into the top 20 of intelligent species on the planet. Cats are not really all that intelligent in the first place. So I was just like, oh my God, like pigs are more intelligent than cats. And I was just like, we farm those and eat those, you know, and just feeding sick to my stomach. Mm-hmm. It still took me a while. Um, I It was 2012 before I became vegan. I went down the, um, I call it the fool's gold um, route, which many um, pre-vegans go down, which is you're trying to fool yourself into thinking, well, I'll just buy meat from ethical farms, you Mm -hmm. know, I'll buy from organic farms. And you go down that route doing, because again, you're trying to make yourself feel better. Oh, I won't buy from a supermarket because that is, you know, factory farming and that kind of thing. But it's okay if I go to an organic farm and, again I had to grow through that period and the realization that yes it's a lesser of two evils but it's still evil you know and now when I explain it to people when people tell me well why don't you go to an organic farm or like a family farm you know that kind of thing I say well it's a bit like racism say I have one person who's a member of the KKK and another person who's mildly racist does that make the mildly racist person a good person like, no, okay, they're not as bad as a member of the KKK, but still, they still just shouldn't be racist in the first place. It's the same thing. It's a lesser of two evils, but it's still not ideal. And the best way to make sure you're not harming any animals is just not to eat them or use them in any way at all. So, yeah, that was, it took, I would say, two and a half years after Isha came into my life. And then I just, that was it. I just woke up one day and I just couldn't do it anymore. It didn't, and it, the, the real change for me was when I realized I no longer even looked forward to eating cheese or meat. Whereas during that time, I'd feel guilty eating it, but I would still enjoy the taste. And when the flip happened was when I realized I don't even like the taste anymore. It just kind of makes me feel a bit ill just having it in my mouth. And that was it. And since then, I haven't. So it's uh, over 10 years now that I've been vegan. Wow. Wow. That's an incredible story, Mitali. Thank you so much for sharing that. And what struck me was how we can only appreciate sentience when we interact with it Mm -hmm. in a harmonious, friendly, non-violent kind of a way. And for a lot of people, that first interaction is through pets at home. Know, yes. treating sentient animals as domesticated pets in our ver- in our human habitat um and then i know of uh you know a section of vegans that are also you know not happy about pet animals and domesticating animals even you know for our own um psychological good and for our company and and to treat them as um soothing comforting comforter assets and stuff like that yeah. But but regardless, you know, I, I, I want to really pay attention and I want to bring our viewers' attention to this important insight that you came upon um, with Isha. 
right? And and Isha is is such a beautiful word in uh, you know Hindi or in Sanskrit because it has this divine ring to yes. it. Right? Yes. The the word for God is Ishwar. In yes. Several yes. Indian languages. Um, so how did you make the bridge between animals we have as pets and and may treat as family um, to animals that we eat, like the pigs and the cows and chickens and fish and, and so on? How, how did you... Gosh, this is interesting, Nivina. I, I can't say for sure. This I'm speculating here. But I would say it was because I know what it feels. I, I grew up in a place called Gateshead in the northeast of England, a predominantly white city, still predominantly white, although now slowly becoming more multicultural. It certainly wasn't like London or Birmingham or Leicester of all these places where lots of Indian and Bengali people congregate. So you have your community. I didn't have that. So I dealt with a lot of racism. I dealt, and within my Asian community, I dealt with a lot of colorism because I'm quite dark skinned. The camera seems to be making me looking a lot lighter than I really am, but I'm actually several shades darker than what I look um, like on camera. Um, and you'll know yourself that colorism is a huge issue in, in Indian society. Um, so I've, I've dealt with all that and I know what it feels like to be reduced down to just one thing that you can't even control whether you know whether it's your skin color or your background or the way you speak it's it's crazy as opposed to what you can do what you can contribute which is what we should all be judged on i think that helps i i think that helps for me not to go down the speciesism route because most people and there's lots of people out there who have pets you know they still eat meat they don't make that their brain just doesn't click they don't make that distinction. It's like in their head, a dog or a cat or even things that other people eat, for example, rabbit, you know, or guinea pig. Or, mm -hmm. But for them, that's a pet. That's in my house. It's cute and I cuddle it. Yeah. The same, even the same species, but on the plate elsewhere, that is acceptable. They just don't. But I think the reason why I didn't do that, the reason why I didn't go down the whole speciesism route where Isha was my family member but it's okay to eat pigs and it's okay to eat cows and you know it, the reason I didn't because I know what it feels like to be reduced down to one thing about you that in most cases you can't control and if you think about it that's what speciesism is like why why is a pig considered food and a cat is considered a pet like it yeah. It's, like yeah. Racism, it's like racism for animals, really, isn't it? <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I think that's, I mean, I, I'm speculating. I don't actually know because I, I met I, many of my friends have pets and yet they're omnivores. Yeah. And I, I have that conversation. We have the, this ongoing dialogue. And I have two friends who've actually become vegan um, over the last two years just after speaking to me and realizing what they were doing and their eyes open. I still have many friends who love their pets, will do anything for their pets. And yet they, they don't, they'll be sat there with bacon rashers mm -hmm. for English breakfast. And they're not making that correlation that, you know, I'm, I'm speaking to my cat or my dog right here. And this sentient being died for me to eat this. And it's just completely unnecessary in this day and age. You can get all the nutrition mm -hmm. from plants and you know and vegetables and fruit and it's not necessary they just don't make that it just doesn't click in their brain but mm -hmm. yeah I'm speculating but I think it's because I know what it feels like to be reduced down to one attribute and I didn't want to do that for animals as far as I'm concerned even the most ugliest animal out there has the right to live it doesn't have to be cute and furry and for me to it doesn't have to look like Isha for example for me to still want that animal to live and to have the right to live instead of me using it or abusing it in any way. Yeah. And and that's fascinating, you know, that that you share this and you made that connection, even though I, I understand that, you know, you're speculating, but I think that it's insightful, right? That mm. um, I've never actually heard speciesism described, uh, described as racism for animals. And, it and it's, it is. <laughs> Absolutely it is, is, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. And and because this is, you know, part of your lived experience. Yeah. 
this yeah. whole um, experience of racism, colorism, um, colonialism, you know, yeah. if you will, right? Uh, in modern day, we say it's post-colonial world, but really it isn't, you know, ask a person of color anywhere in the world, including back in South Asia, even if you're living in a predominantly community of color, you do um, see those, uh, you know, remnants of it. And, and because of this intersectional layer, and, and uh, you know, and you, you've experienced it and, and you're able to then say, well, all sentience is sentience and it's equal. And you're able yes. to make that connection. Now, let me ask you about another bridge that a lot of people um, don't automatically make. And, and, and I have a feeling maybe it's got to do something with your vegetarian upbringing, perhaps, or, or maybe not, but it's an interesting question that I thought of. So you made the bridge between so-called pet animals and animals that society um, thinks it's appropriate to eat. But what about the bridge between meat and dairy? Like, how did you, how did you connect? Because a lot of people are like, okay, slaughtering animals is clearly violent and we shouldn't do this. But then people don't make that, um, you know, make that part of their anti-dairy logic or cheese and, and so on. Do, do you remember when that happened? Yeah, um, again, I think it was the reason I came into uh, veganism. So when I speak to a lot of vegetarians, some of my friends are vegetarian, and there, there's a deep belief that killing is wrong. And I think if you come to vegetarianism or veganism with that the main tenet, which is killing is wrong, then you can understand why those people will then eat eggs, eat cheese, drink milk, because the, the being that created it isn't dead. Whereas I came into it understanding that animals have far more sentience than I was led to believe. Yeah. They know what's going on. And then I start to think, well, how would I feel if I was impregnated again and again so yeah, and then my baby's been taken away from me, so the milk can be consumed by others. So that's why I never, because a lot of people, they go from being omnivore to being vegetarian to being vegan. It's done in a stage. Whereas I just went, you know, I had a really strange way of, you know, vegetarian, then omnivore, then vegan. It was like, talk about doing it topsy-turvy, but I did it in a completely weird and different route to how most people do it. But because of that, because when I was a vegetarian, that wasn't a choice. I was a child uh, living in a Indian household. My mother made incredible veg uh, vegetarian curries. So I never thought I needed to eat meat. I was happy. And then when I was given the choice that I could go and eat meat, I did a typical teen thing, rebel against my parents and go and do what all these white kids were doing because I wanted to fit in. That was essentially what it is. I don't think I ever sat there and thought I really wanted a McDonald's burger. I think it was because I was living in a predominantly white city where I didn't feel accepted. I had dealt with racism. I had a few white friends. Um, and that's what they did. They went and hung out at McDonald's and I didn't mm -hmm. want to be the square one who's just sat there having chips, you know, and fries. So suddenly I was like, oh my God, I'm allowed to have hamburgers. I'm allowed to have cheeseburgers. So I did. Um, it wasn't really a choice. The, the one and only time I really made a choice when it comes to what goes into my mouth and beyond that, what I wear and the impact that I make was when I became vegan. And that was because I come at it from a sentience point of view. I think if you're coming to veganism through other routes, for example, if you believe that killing in general is the bad thing, but that's it, or you come into it from a, an environmental point of view, then you could make the arguments, you'll know more about this than I will maybe because you, you understand this side of veganism. What is the environmental impact of dairy compared to meat farming? maybe dairy, it has a lower impact. So then someone who comes into veganism through the environmental factor, they can justify having dairy every so often because it doesn't have the same. Can you see what I mean? You can justify it, but I could not justify it because I was coming at it from a completely different angle, which is animals know 
a hell of a lot more than we think they know. They really understand what's going on. They're far, they have far more complex brains. Even chickens have now been proven to have really large, it's not just like that main mother, father, baby. They have, they understand aunts and uncles and they have this wider organizational family. And that's a chicken. Chickens are like, if you think of a farm, they're usually seen as the most lowest level animal there. And they're able to have these big, families and recognize other chickens and how they're related to each other how do you eat that then you know you but then you know not only eat you can't do anything to exploit them mm -mm. which why there's just no way i can have you know dairy there's no way i can have butter yogurt eggs anything like that because i have to sit there and think how would i feel how would i feel if that was doing to me and i've always thought well, in all fairness i think if i was born as a cow in a farm, I think I'd prefer to be born as a beef cow because at least, I mean, when do they usually call it about six to nine months? Mm -hmm. At least you're out of your misery after a few months. A dairy cow has to live like that for years, being impregnated again and again, being milked, having a baby's taken away from her, going through the anguish of a baby's being killed as a byproduct, and then to finally end up as pet food somewhere. That's to me is far worse than being a beef cow. So mm -hmm. yeah, for me, I, I, I couldn't do that. The other thing that came much later, that was the main reason why I couldn't, I couldn't have, you know, dairy at all. Um, what came to me much, much later, I would say in 2017, I was reading an article that was talking about how dairy is going to be the big, it's in the next 30 to 50 years, it's going to be the big scandal to rival the tobacco scandal yeah. from the early noise. So, you, I mean, you remember that when the big tobacco scandal happened that, you know, it was uncovered that all of these tobacco companies back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, they were using advertising that alluded to the fact that tobacco was natural and good for you. Um, you know, if you go as far back as in the 30s, there were doctors that were prescribing smoking to asthma patients, saying it opens up their airwaves, which now we just go, oh, my God, that is the craziest thing ever. Um, and I was reading this article about how dairy was going to be the next tobacco scandal. And I remember thinking, what? I mean, I would never eat dairy, but that was from an animal sentience point of view. But no, it can't. And then the more I read and I started to research on it, my eyes were opened all over again the right. realization that dairy is sits it's unique it actually sits separately to meat fish eggs in the meat and fish and eggs as higher order beings we can make the choice now that it's not the right thing to do however animals do eat animals Animals do eat fish. There are fish that eat fish. Animals do steal another species' eggs and eat them. So it is as harsh as it is. Nature can be harsh. But no animal takes the milk that's meant for the young of another species and drinks it. It's actually, if you think about it, it's perverse what we're doing. And because of that, I mean, you know, I don't know if this traveled to Indian, if you, but here in the UK, we used to have a saying that was brought about in the 60s and 70s, which was breast is best. As yeah. breast milk. Yeah. And that became like a famous saying. Uh, and the reason why is I don't remember this because I'm too young to remember. But my mother tells me when she first had me in 1978, there was a lot of companies here in the UK um, that created um milk for women who didn't want to breastfeed mm -hmm. but what they were doing is they were advertising as it was better than breast milk mm -hmm. so they were they weren't advertising it to women who couldn't make milk that's different you need to help those mothers who don't make enough milk for the, for their infant but they were advertising it to women who can perfectly breastfeed but they were advertising as this is better than breast milk and then obviously over time these children they grew up they had you know less bone density they had other health problems which came about because their mother believed they were doing the right thing by taking them off breast milk and putting them onto this powdered formula 
mill. So there was this huge scandal. They were sued for billions of, of pounds and that sort of thing. And that's when that saying said, breast is best. Breast milk has been so beautifully designed for the human baby that you cannot engineer it. No matter how good your scientists are, you cannot engineer anything that is good as breast milk for humans. So guess what breast milk for cows is beautifully designed for? Not us. <laughs> it's not designed for us at all. So yes. why the hell are we drinking it? Why are we making it into cheese? It's, you know, yeah. it's crazy to me. It's absolutely crazy to me. Yeah, it's it's amazing. You know, the the epic central insight that you had, which was related to the sentience of mm -hmm. these other beings. And, and when you blended it subconsciously with yeah. your own lived experience of colorism, racism, colonialism, this whole segregatory stratification tendency that human beings have, we tend to stack things up and put something yeah. on someone on top and then we you know bring other things and you know animals or humans you know further down on the totem pole and somehow give ourselves the right yeah. to meet out treatment which is you know prejudiced or different right and 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 then what you just mentioned about you know there could be natural alternatives to women who are not able to produce breast milk to feed their infants there are natural uh, there is probably a scientific alternative to um natural you know childbirth but how in a consumerist society which is very extractive in nature we build or the industry has advertised and build stories around how it's okay to make these things as an elective choice you know, yeah. to have um, cow milk as an elective choice or to feed your baby cow milk or other, you know, non-human milk as an elective choice or a cesarean section to be an elective choice yeah. um, versus natural childbirth. You know, there are just so many similarities. And, and I think that that's when it, that's when dairy and veganism um, bleeds into, no pun intended, um, an eco-feminist issue. And, and yes. I remember that, you know, our mutual friend Katrina Fox at the Vibas Network recently held this panel discussion uh, about um, Milked, which is a documentary that reveals the harsh truths of the New Zealand dairy industry. And, and that panel discussion was all about eco-feminism, you know. So talking about stories, you turn into a vegan probably you were always a storyteller vegan or not um and and now you're a you're a book publisher and and there was a point in time when you weren't openly a vegan book publisher for vegans with a vegan team and and so on you're you're literally like the the only uh, publisher i know you know so you're the first <laughs> publisher for vegan entrepreneurs writers i'm proud to be now now that i've got here it's one of those things isn't it nivy when you finally get to your destination you kind of think why did it take me this long to get here like why why did that not click I, i've been i've been a ghostwriter and a copywriter since 2013 so almost the same amount of time that i've been vegan i became vegan in, at the end of 2012 and i started my own business as a copywriter and content writer for a number of different websites around the world in 2013. So it's almost coincided. And yet they kind of, they came to my life at the same time. And yet they were very different routes. Or it's almost like I had different hats. I had my vegan hat on, which is in my personal life, you know, making those right choices. So making sure that any anything that I buy, anything that I eat, anything that I use is not impacting any animal. And then I had my writing career and my business and that just sat separately. And I don't know why I never thought of, well, why would I not work with people who had the same beliefs and ethics as me? I don't know why, Nivy. Now it sounds crazy. It's almost that like sounds crazy that I'm even saying to you, but it just didn't even click. I just, it was just something I did my veganism was my personal thing mm -hmm. and my business was my business. 
and I just never even thought it in those terms. And then I sold you, I was a ghostwriter. I ended up writing seven books for um, different clients. Um, and then I had the, this sort of idea in 2018. I had just finished my seventh book. It took me about six weeks to write. The first one took me 17 months. So it's a huge difference from the first to the seventh book. And I realized that by the time I wrote the seventh one, I had a recipe. I had like a structure, uh, almost like a cookie cutter. And I can just say, this is how to do it. And I just suddenly thought, why don't I show people my structure, how I do this now? Because that means I can help more people. Because I can only write five or six books in a year, maybe mm -hmm. seven or eight at a push. But if I can show people how to write their own books, I can help exponentially more people. So for example, in the last less than 18 months, 16 months, I published 16 authors. I wouldn't have been able to write 16 books even if I stayed awake the whole time and didn't go to sleep, I wouldn't be able to write that many books. It, it, it just wouldn't have happened. So, but even then, even when I became a book publisher, I didn't sit there and think, why wouldn't I work with vegan entrepreneurs, vegan business owners, vegan influencers, vegan experts? Again, I just didn't even, I think, do you know what it is, Nibby? Again, I'm, I'm speculating here, but I think I think the reason why my brain was so slow and didn't click on these things is I came to veganism, I've now found, in quite a different and unusual way. Most of the people that I've now met through mm -hmm. becoming the vegan publisher, they will their stories are usually a friend became vegan and then they started to speak to that friend about why have you become vegan and that friend has influenced them to become vegan. Another major route is they read a book um, or they saw a documentary. Like I've, I've spoken to a number of people who said, oh, I saw Seaspiracy and that was it. Or I saw Cowspiracy and I couldn't do it anymore. So that's another route. I've also heard um, people say they've gone to a festival and mm -hmm. it had, there was like, you know, an animal rights stand and they just kind of meandered over and then suddenly were struck and it was like, oh my God. And they, they didn't even know that that was going to happen to them on that day. Those are the stories I usually hear. But what usually these stories all have in common is there's a community. Mm -hmm. I became vegan in complete isolation. For the first five years, I think I was the only vegan I knew. So I, I'm quite unusual in that I started my journey almost just being very bloody minded and just going, well, this is how I want to live my life. And that's that. Everybody else can go to hell, even if they don't like it. I never sought out a community I never even knew there were that many vegans. And because of that, maybe again, it's because of my background where I've experienced racism, colorism. I've been, I'm, I can be very sociable, but I'm also very, very comfortable on my own because I've mm -hmm. learned to be very, very comfortable on my own. Right. Because I've been isolated a lot of my life. So you learn to cope as best as you can. And because of that, whereas most people, when they start something new, it's natural to go and seek out other people that are on that same journey. Because of my experiences and my background, I didn't do that. So I became a vegan in complete isolation. And I think that had a massive effect on me almost being, not even being aware that there's this whole world of vegan entrepreneurs and experts who would love someone like me to help them because I'll be someone who shares their values and ethics. I genuinely had no idea, Navi, no idea. And then I decided to write my own book, The Freedom Master Plan. That came out in um, March last year. Doesn't even mention, so this book doesn't even mention that I'm vegan. It only came out last year. I wrote it in October, 2020. So at that point I'd been vegan for eight years. And yet the book doesn't even mention the fact that I'm vegan, why I'm vegan because my brain just didn't even click. The two worlds didn't come together. The, my veganism was something I did in my private world and my professional world was all about writing and helping people to become the best authors they can be. That was it. Then my book came out and suddenly there was all these vegan entrepreneurs. Somebody had found out, actually I know exactly who it is. It's a lady called Heather Landex, a really good yep. friend of mine now. You yes. know Heather, an yes. amazing lady. She basically dragged me into all of these, <laughs> these vegan networks. I thought, okay, why not? I wasn't really expecting all that much. And suddenly that I was just introduced to this amazing vegan world where you got all these really inspiring people, people like you that I've met, 
doing these incredible things. And suddenly I'm thinking, oh my God, I've been an idiot. I've been an absolute idiot. This whole world of people who have the same values, same ethics. Maybe they got into veganism via a different route, but it doesn't matter how we get there. I don't care. At the moment, I've noticed there's a lot of um, infighting within vegans regarding whether someone's vegan for the animals or whether they're vegan for the environment or whether they're vegan for health. I'm like, who the hell cares? As long as someone is vegan, why are we nitpicking? It doesn't really matter why somebody's vegan. The fact that they are is impacting all of those things in a positive way. It's impacting the environment in a positive way. It's impacting animal rights in a positive way. And it's impacting human health in the right way. So who cares how somebody gets in? And that's when I just thought, why am I working with any entrepreneur when I can specialize with working with entrepreneurs who have my values and my ethics? Surely right. it would be so much more fun helping those people write books because yeah. they've got the same thinking that I have. And that's why I've now since rebranded as the vegan publisher. And yeah, that's the second edition of my book that's going to be out on the 20th of May this year, because I realized as the vegan publisher, people are going to go and look me up and they'll go and get my first edition book. And I don't even mention that I'm vegan in there. And that's going to be such a dissonance to it. It's going to be like, hang on, she's the vegan publisher. And yet a book doesn't even mention anything about her veganism. What the hell? It's very confusing. So that's when I realized I needed to create the second edition of my book where I talk about my journey and really kind of nail my colors to the mast and actually say, I actually want to work with vegan entrepreneurs. And since then, I've had abuse, which is always typical. Any vegan entrepreneur will tell you that as soon as you actually say that you're vegan and you prefer to work with vegan entrepreneurs, suddenly you get abuse from people. It's like, oh, well, you're discriminating against non-vegans. As if that's, you know, for me, discrimination is discrimination against color or gender or sexual orientation or you know, things that you can't help. Yeah. What you choose to put in your mouth is something that you can help. That's not discrimination. Do you know what I mean? That is me saying right. I want to work with people who have the same ethics as me. That's right. discrimination as well. You've made ethical choices. Um, exactly. That That's somebody's choice that they've made. So, and I love the way that now non-vegans kind of, you know, say that's discrimination against them as in the same way that someone can be discriminated against because of their sexual orientation or it's like that's completely different that is something that someone doesn't choose that is how they were born with you are not born to eat meat and dairy that is something you learned over time and you can unlearn it you're yes. choosing not to unlearn it so therefore i'd rather not work with you that's, I think I think I'm quite within my rights to make that stipulation, really. But yeah, so I do get a little bit of abuse now because I'm, I'm now becoming much more vocal that I really, really want to work with vegan entrepreneurs. Yeah, well, and and you know we're so glad that Heather you know dragged you to the vegan club. Yeah, and I owe her so much. I owe her so much. Through her, I met you. I met you know Katrina. I've met Kathleen Gage. I've met. David and Lisa from Vegan Business Tribe and all of these key people that really helped me and my understanding of veganism. And it's it's really weird. Like now, sometimes you don't realize that something was wrong in your life until it goes right. I know that sounds really weird, but I didn't realize that having such disparate parts of my life, my business, which was here, and then my veganism was here, I didn't realize that was even a problem. But now that it's one thing, I just feel so much more alive. Like this is really what I feel I was meant to do on this planet. And the whole thing flows now. It's not compartmentalized. Right. And before my life was compartmentalized, it no. was, you know, my veganism and the activism was my personal life. And my business was separate. And now I just think well, that's crazy. Why wouldn't you bring those two parts together? Surely that's the best way to live your life when you feel like you're really living your purpose. Right. Absolutely. And, and you know, what you hit upon is a really important thing um, that some, you know, some of us, well, not in your case, but some of us are scared to live our personal ethic and, and turn that into our professional ethic for mm -hmm this very fear of backlash or 
not being accepted in our professional you know circles for who we really are and it takes exceptional courage to be able to say i'm not living two lives yeah. i'm happier if i just am able to bring the whole me um whatever my nutritional ethic is whatever my personal ethic is lifestyle is to my place of work without any fear of admonishing and, and actually far from it, being able to serve people through that ethic. And, and that's what you're doing. So let's talk about your method of serving and, and deploying your skills, as it were, you know, to the um, benefit of the vegan movement and to the benefit of public and planetary health. So um, my goal really is, Nivi, is just to make it as easy as possible for someone to write a book and not just any kind of book. I'm sure you've seen some, you know, 50 page wonders on Amazon. That's not a real book. That's someone who's just knocked together a PDF and uploaded it. That doesn't do anything for your reputation, your authority. I'm talking about a, a professional level published book mm -hmm. um, and what it can do for you, not just personally, but for your brand and your business and your authority. Um, because, I mean, I was struck as I got involved with more and more vegan networks, how many people were saying to me that they became vegan because they, they read a book. Yeah. You know, it's, it's one of the fundamental ways that people become vegan. I think the, the next one, the one that's almost on a par with books is documentaries, Docu especially over the last, I would say, five years. You know, you've had these major documentaries commissioned by Amazon Prime and Netflix, and they've had a huge effect as well. The issue with documentaries are it's it's just a little bit beyond the average person to create a documentary. Yeah. You know, you literally need tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars or pounds to get a documentary to the, the standard that Netflix or Amazon would want to show. Um, otherwise it's just going to be something you're going to stick on YouTube and that's it, you know, and hope enough people see it. So books is just so, they're just so much more attainable for somebody, mm -hmm. a few thousand dollars, and you can have a book that is on the same level as a major publisher, such as HarperCollins or Penguin Random House or Macmillan or any one of these major publishers. So it's much more attainable for the average vegan or ethical entrepreneur expert rather than a documentary and it just allows them to get their voice out to as many people as possible so my my goal is i kind of have a i'll tell you a little bit about my dream so yeah. i i turned 43 last year i'm 44 in a few months i know that's not old by the way nivy i'm not trying to feel sorry for myself but i'm not young either <laughs> i'm not young either i'm not old but i'm not young i'm kind of like that midpoint in my life and last year i think it was i think it was about may last year I woke up from a dream that I know was a bad dream because my heart was racing. You never wake up with your heart racing when it's a, a good dream. It's, it was a bad dream, but I can't remember the specific of my dream. I, I, it, it was gone, I, but I just remembered feeling anxious and feeling depressed and my heart was racing. And I think I, I just woke up feeling depressed that I was probably going to die before it became a vegan normal world. Mm -hmm. I just had this feeling that it's happening. We all know it's happening. You all have to just look around us and we can see how veganism is taking hold. So we know it's gonna happen. We know at some point, definitely in the next hundred years, it's gonna be, veganism is gonna be normal and using and eating um, um, animals is gonna be this weird thing that a small group of people maybe still do, but it's gonna be seen as archaic. But I just had this feeling it's not going to happen in the next 30 to 40 years, which is probably my lifetime. I mean, I, I'm hoping to get to my 80s. Maybe I'm lucky and I get to my 90s or even over 100. We don't know. Um, but I just thought, I don't think it's going to happen in, in this lifetime. And that just made me feel really anxious and quite sad. I just thought I want to be alive for that day when I can just walk out and I'm not a minority. I'm the majority, you know? I'm not having to be like, oh, I'm vegan, so I can't eat this and I can't eat that. Instead, it's the other way around. It's the people who are asking for animal products that are the weird ones, like, really? You want that? Okay. You know, and that's what I wanted to be. Um, and that's when I thought, well, what can I do with my skills 
to at least attempt to bring that day closer so maybe I will be alive when it happens and I just thought I'd be I'd be terrible as an animal activist. I am like the biggest wuss in the world. I cry at the drop of a hat. You know, one of my favorite people, Kaylee um, from Kakadu Creative, fantastic designer. Web, she does web design with her, with her partner. Um, she's part of Extinction um, Rebellion. And I think she's off this weekend. I think she's actually going down to London and she's, she's even been arrested. This woman is just fearless, you know. If that was me, I'd just be crying for my mother if I got arrested. <laughs> I'd be more of a, I'd be a liability on the front lines of, uh, of animal activism than I would be any help. So you sometimes have to sit there and think about what are your strengths and what are your weaknesses and be very honest to yourself about what you can contribute. And just saying, well, this is a good idea and just doing it, you could actually be causing more problems for people rather yeah. than helping them. So yeah. I just don't think, well, what can I do? And I thought, well, the, my only skill is that I'm very good at writing and I'm very good at teaching people how to write. And that's when the idea came about. I just thought, well, if I can use my skills to make it as easy as possible for even someone who has no writing experience, even somebody, one of my students has got dyslexia and he left school without any qualifications. He honestly, the thought that he would ever become a published author was so remote for him that he wouldn't even have thought of it. But right. he's now about three months away from becoming a published author. Awesome. So that's what I want to do. I want to make it as easy as possible for people to become professionally published authors. Because I know firsthand from being an author myself, how books open doors for you. They yeah allow you to be seen as an authority people just kind of there's a yes so yeah how to turn the expert ability into authority states everyone's an expert online at the moment you know you can't move online without somebody telling you they're an expert on so-and-so and it's you almost end up drowning out the noise because everyone it sounds like everyone's an expert and you're like who do i believe mm. who's really an expert and who is just it's just marketing it's just they're saying what they're saying and the thing is, in a world where everybody has websites, everyone has social media, how do you differentiate? Like, how do you differentiate who is the real expert and who is just saying what they're saying? When you write a book, you immediately stand out. You just immediately stand out as somebody who must be the real expert. Because writing, first of all, writing a book takes more effort. Anybody can stick up a website, 14-year-olds stick up websites. Anybody has social media. It doesn't take a lot of effort to put that together. But to write a book, even with someone like me, if you have someone like me in your corner, I'm gonna obviously make it as step-by-step -step and as easy as possible. But it still requires more effort from you than putting together a website or putting together a LinkedIn profile. I have to be honest with you. I'm not gonna do the work for you. You still need to do the work. You still need to write the book. So. There's an element of respect that someone has gone through that process. So therefore, that lends to this belief that this person really is an expert and they're not just saying they're an expert. They're somehow right. better than everybody else that does whatever that person does. Right. And also, the other thing is, is it, can, it becomes a virtuous cycle. Because people believe you're the expert, they then ask you, hey, come and, come and guest on my podcast. Oh, I, I, would you like to keynote at my event? Would you like to? And the more you do that, then that feeds in even more. It's like a virtuous cycle where people see you as even more of an expert because now not only you're an author, you were keynote speaking at this event and you were at this prestigious podcast and you were, and that's what happened to me. Last year, I featured on 78 podcasts. Wow. I, I've, before, prior to me publishing my book, I always say there's a reason why people become ghostwriters. We're not very good at speaking. We're good at writing. We don't really like the camera in our face. I, mm -hmm. I like being a behind the scenes kind of person. Somebody else can take all the accolades. I'm just happy doing what I'm doing and getting paid well. And then that's it. So if I wasn't an author, there is literally no way I would have secured 78 podcast appearances. Some of them with like, you know, tens of thousands of downloads. I, they would have just said no, because they would have said, well, what's your history? What podcast have you been on before? None. 
I have no history. People say, well, sorry, no, you're, you're not really what we're looking for. I was asked to speak in front of 500 people in September. I've never been on stage before in my life. And again, if I wasn't an author, I really don't think they would have given me that opportunity. They would have yeah. just said, what experience have you got speaking? No experience. Well, yeah. there you go. But when you be, when, sorry, what were you going to say? Natalia, I was going to ask you a question about authority. And, and since we're talking about it, you know, uh, you mentioned um, this, this model that you tend to use and, and the inspiration that you drew from this specific, um, you know, book that was written by Robert Cialdini. And um, like, tell us a little bit about this. You know, we're talking about persuasion, influence. Yeah authority and and there's a bunch of other words written on the screen here like reciprocity scarcity scope this for us you know uh, did robert write this book about publishing or was it no <laughs> no, no, no 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 he did this for nothing to do with books he was talking he is a psychologist and he's done a lot of um research um and he was just the book is really about how to influence human beings Okay. Obviously, he wants people to be influenced for good, but you could use those principles and influence people for bad. And he also uses in the book, he talks about how some of these have been used for evil. For example, with the authority section um, of that um, diagram, um, he, he mentioned this. Um, it was it was an experiment that was done a number of decades ago where people were asked to do, deliver a small shock to somebody else by somebody in a lab coat. In other words, looks like a doctor. And then they were asked to keep, you know, giving these shocks, but the shocks were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And they were actually, there were no shocks, by the way. The other person was just an actor, a very good actor pretending to get this electric shock. But the, the point of that experiment was that because somebody had a lab coat, they did, no one even checked to see is this person a genuine doctor? Where, what's his, you know, what's, where's his qualifications? You know, no one even asked. Just the fact that this person looked like a doctor because they had a lab coat on and they had a, a clipboard and all those things you associate with somebody who's a doctor and therefore far more intelligent than you. And then they're saying, oh, it's okay. No, this person has agreed to this experiment so you can keep shocking them. And then most people were just like, oh, okay. And they just carried on pressing the button. And as far as they were knew, they were delivering these huge shocks to this other human being, causing them a lot of pain and or discomfort. Like I said, that person was an actor, so they weren't in any discomfort, but they were acting as if they were in pain. That that was like one example of what people are like with authority, how people have these shortcuts when it comes to authority. And mm -hmm. as soon as you see someone in, in the medical profession or they have the medical paraphernalia we associate with that profession, we instantly just go, that person knows what they're doing. I don't, I'm inferior intelligence. I'm just gonna do whatever that person says. Although and that person- That exactly like the, the doctors holding a, a stub in their hands in tobacco advertising that you were earlier talking about. Right? Exactly, exactly. When a doctor says, when they did in the 20s and 30s, that smoking is good for you, you don't question that. You just think, well, a doctor's telling me the smoking is good for me. It must be good for me. It must open my airways. It must be a natural product. Well, I suppose tobacco is a natural product. doesn't mean it's good for you, though. Um, it's, it's that shortcut. Uh, so when Robert Cialdini was writing that book, it has nothing to do with books. It was all about, he was showing how human beings are very easily persuaded to do whatever somebody wants them to do, if you understand these influences. So on the diagram, he talks about these are specific things that when they come together, so you've got scarcity, reciprocity, I can never say that properly, authority, social proof, commitment and consistency and liking, when they all come together, you are able to influence most human beings to doing whatever you want them to do, whether that's good or evil, you can do what you do. What I took from the book when I read it, I realized that I was ghostwriting. I realized that a book actually accomplishes all of those things. So, I mean, if you go back to the diagram, I'll kind of explain to you. So the authority, 
Well, straight away, we've already discussed that as soon as someone writes a book, there's an immediate respect that someone has gone through that process. It's so, so, so much harder to write a book than just stick a website up or create a social media profile or write a blog post. So immediately, it's like that doctor thing all over again. It's like someone says they've written a book on a subject. You instantly go, okay, this person is not just an expert. They're an authority. They're an expert amongst experts because they've written a book on the subject. You also get social proof because, like I said, it's a, it's a virtuous cycle. Because you've written a book, people see you as an expert amongst other experts. So therefore, you're now going to be invited to speak on podcasts, speak on radio shows, go on local TV shows, be featured in a newspaper or a magazine. That now gives you social proof. The commitment and consistency, that comes again with writing a book. People... People who's, who read a book, they see that this is someone really nailing their colors to the mast. Online, it seems like people change their stories or change what they stand for, sometimes on a daily basis. That doesn't happen with a book. Uh, there's something very permanent about a book. And when someone writes a book, you really are nailing your colors to the mast and saying, this is who I am. This is how I, how I show up in the world. This is what I want to do. There is commitment and consistency there. What was the next one there? I was going through the actual, um, the diagram. I was going through um, clockwise. Liking, that's a big one. If, if you think about it, the, the main reason most of us are on social media as entrepreneurs or experts is we want to be liked. The thing with social media, though, is there's, everyone's in, in there and it's yeah. so noisy. And, you know, your posts are usually not being seen by the majority of your audience. Yeah. And also, it, there's a, a temporary nature of social media. It's here today and it's gone within a few hours in some cases, never mind the next day. Yeah. I found that with my book, especially my first book, where I, as you know, I didn't talk about my veganism because I didn't realize I was going to go down that route. But I talk about my background, my experiences of racism, of colorism, yeah. my experience of um, I became addicted to amphetamines when I was younger um, and then having to get clean. Um, and I talk a lot about that. I can't tell you, Nivy, how many people contact me and say, oh, my God, I had no idea you'd gone through that. I think that's amazing. I've been through this or my brother has been through that or my mother has experienced this. That's liking. That's how people like you. Your book, if you think about it, is going to be the place where you can put the, the longest message of who you are what you stand for, what you've been through. Think of how long an average social media post is. Most right. people don't want to read more than about two or 300 words maximum, but they're willing to read for longer and more intently when it's in a book. So you have the, the biggest opportunity to get your audience to understand you and like you. So yeah, I mean, can you see how what, Robert Cialdini, when he wrote this book, had nothing to do with books. Um, scarcity, again, that comes into with books. Think of the abundance of social media. It's everywhere. Right. You know, I, when I used to, when I spoke live um, before the pandemic, what I would do is in a room, I would actually get people to stay standing up if they had something in their business. So I'd say, stay standing up if you have social media. And practically everyone stays standing up. You might get one or two people who have, you know, mom and pop kind of businesses where it's all done word of mouth and they don't use social media. But most people stay standing up. Then I'll say, stay standing up if you have a website and again most people stay standing up one or two might sit down and then i might say stay standing up if you have business cards and some people do now sit down because they're like oh business cards is so old-fashioned i don't do that anymore i have virtual business cards on my phone but again a lot of people stay standing up especially if i'm in an in-person event because they've come to the in-person event and then i'll say stay standing up if you've written a book and usually the whole place just sits down and you might get one person and then that one person's author and, that, and everyone will be like oh my god you're an author and everyone's like well done no one claps because you've got a website or a business card or you're on linkedin no one claps but as soon as you say you're an author the, again that scarcity factor it right. comes in, it's like wow you've written a book okay cool you really know your stuff. You're an authority and the scarcity is there. So if you go through the whole diagram, Robert Childe, and reciprocity, that one is that one is a separate thing but works really well. People feel that when you give them a book, whether they buy it or I've even sent my book out to prospective um, clients uh, as a gift, 
Yeah. And I, I've even had people send me flowers back because I sent them a book. I'm like, my book is just my marketing piece. And they've ended up becoming my clients. And yet they've sent me flowers. Now, imagine if you send somebody to your website. Do you think they will feel any need to reciprocate the fact that you <laughs> sent them? <laughs> <laughs> They'll be like, I don't need to reciprocate that. They just want me to have a look at their website. So I did. But you send somebody your book, they, they're like, oh, my God. I, yeah. that's a, it's, a, it's a gift. So, again, you have the reciprocity there as well. So if you look at the whole diagram, a book is able to do all of this right. in one go. I hope you can see how powerful writing a book is. Writing and marketing a book, you actually, in one fell swoop, you get all of these um, persuasion influence, sorry, these persuasion factors. And when they come together, that is when you have influence. And that's why you've got influence in the middle. And that's what Cialdini was talking about. When you just activate one or two of these things, you're doing well. But the people who really are able to influence other people to change their behavior, to do something different, to see the world in a different way, which is essentially as vegan entrepreneurs, that's what we are doing. Yes, we need to eat. We still need to live our lives and make good money. But if that was all we wanted to do, we wouldn't have a vegan business. Right. You know, I could be a publisher for any entrepreneur. I don't need to be the vegan publisher. I choose to be the vegan publisher because I think beyond just my profits. Yeah. I like money. I, I want to make love. I'm making quite good money and I want to make even more money. But I have an overriding sense of purpose beyond just making profits for my business yeah which is i want to help vegan entrepreneurs thrive and all vegan entrepreneurs whatever they're doing whether they're vegan accountants whether they have a vegan restaurant whether they're making vegan leather bags it doesn't matter what they're doing it's not just for profits they're doing it to make a, a kinder more conscious world that isn't harming the environment that isn't harming animals that isn't harming human health they have that bigger reason yeah to be able to do that and to influence as many people, you need to bring all those seven factors in that diagram into play in your business. And right. by writing a book, it's one way of doing all of those things in one fell swoop. It's quite, if you think about it, if you're doing all of those factors separately, it's gonna take a lot of time in your business. To get people to like you, you have to be on social media almost feels like 24 seven, you know, because most of your audience don't even see a lot of the stuff that you're posting. So you have to post a lot of stuff constantly to get that liking factor. Whereas, yeah. Yeah. yeah, each, if you do each of those individually in your business, it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of energy before you will get to a stage where you are able to successfully influence a lot of people most of the time. You right. write a book, you're yeah. getting all of those in in one go, yeah. and you hit that level of influence a lot faster with a lot less effort. Absolutely. Natalia, thank you so much for sharing that. We're at the hour, but I do want to, you know, I, I, if you can, in less than 30 seconds, tell us about your programs. Tell us how can people reach you? Um, you know, I, I'm just going to uh, share with our viewers. Uh, there are two, you know, books that you've um you know, facilitated and, and mentored uh, these two amazing women to write Amanda Redmond's Dare to be Fair and, and Bobby Giudicelli's Freedom from a Toxic Relationship with Food. Um, and, and these amazing vegan authors that have had the benefit of your mentoring. Um, so tell us a little bit about your programs, uh, you know, so that people know how they can reach you and, and they can unleash uh, the vegan author inside of that. Yeah, oh, but those books are fantastic. Thank you for featuring this because they actually explain the difference in the kinds of people that I'm dealing with. Amanda is a financial advisor. And then, um, you know, her book is all about empowering women to take control of their finances. And then you have Bobby Giudicelli, who has had a 40 plus year battle with bulimia and anorexia and how she was only able to slay her demons by becoming vegan. That was when she stopped thinking about food as something that goes into a body and start thinking of as what is kind to the world. And she stopped thinking about calories and all that kind of stuff. Two completely different books, but just goes to show how I want to empower vegan entrepreneurs, no matter what kind of business you've got. Yeah. 
I think veganizing the world is going to be a, a many pronged attack. It's not just food. It's not just leather bags. It's not just one thing or another. It's all of these things that we all need to collectively do to veganize the world. Um, and my programs do that. So I have uh, video programs. I also have one-to-one -one coaching. I have group coaching. I have many different programs depending on budget as well as how much support you need. Some people, I find some of my students are self-starters. They don't really need me. They just need me to just make sure they're doing things correctly and then they can just do things on their own. Other people, they suffer from huge imposter syndrome and they need a lot of time and effort from me and guidance to make sure that they're fully aware of what it takes to be an author and get the best book out of them. So it, I would say just get in touch with me. Let's have a conversation. And within usually about half an hour, I can work out what level of support you need so that I know that you're going into the right program for you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being our guest at Javinity Connecting the Dots, Mitali De Progesta. You're an author uh, of the Freedom Master Plan. The book came out in May and um, you're, you're just amazing. You're a vegan publisher. You're the world's arguably the world's first vegan publisher. I, I believe I am. There are, there are publishers out there, um, but they just publish books. There's no one actually helping you, coaching you yeah. to write the book. And also I have a hundred percent vegan team. So yeah. my editors, designers, mm -hmm. everybody is vegan. Even the backend IT people are vegan. I've completely veganized my business because I realized it's important to me and my clients that when they spend money with me, no cent or no penny of that is going to harm animals or the environment or human health. So I completely, I even had to let go some amazing members of staff, but they weren't vegan. So it's like, you don't fit in with my ideology anymore. So yeah, I, I believe I am the first person in the world specifically that does that. That is awesome, Mitali. It has been a pleasure talking to you and um, I look forward to continuing our conversation. And thank you. Thank you.